if if what is true is true that there's six or seven million barrels out there, it's hard to keep track of all of them, right? And know where they are. That's fair. And 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 know where they all are. And that's just Kentucky. Yeah. You said if. Does that mean you question that number? Oh, I absolutely question that number. And I would tell you that we don't know the ages of all those barrels and how much is left in those barrels and what's there. So really, if you assume every barrel is 63.6 proof gallons when it's filled, you know, some of these barrels, if 500,000 of them are 15 years old, they're only going to make one case out of each barrel. I'm making that up. But I mean, you know, the, the amount of product that could be out there could be something, I think, a, a little bit less. Hey, everybody. Welcome to 2019. Yes, this is our first podcast of the new year, and we have got a lot of great subjects and a lot of great guests to cover in this new year as well. I hope you had a fantastic New Year's Eve. You had a great time and also you partied safe as per usual. Now, you might be wondering what is happening with Bourbon Pursuit in 2019. I took some time to reflect on 2018, and it was yet another year of monumental growth for this podcast. We made a lot of strategic moves to keep our innovation alive. Fred joined the show. We got to be a part of Bourbon and Beyond. We had 15 barrels that were selected as a part of our private barrel program. We launched our very own private label, the Pursuit Series, a part of Pursuit Spirits. And we grew our Patreon community to hundreds of members. Now, 2019, it's not going to be any different you're going to expect a lot of positive changes because we're continuing to pivot and grow to cement our spot as the number one bourbon podcast out there. So what are some of those things that we have in store? Well, we've got a pipeline of guests that are going to expand our reach from culinary endeavors, even to celebrities. We're going to have some new help that are going to help move the production quality and also keep a consistent social media postings. And we've got more experience related rewards that are coming to our Patreon community and more. You can read it all on our public Patreon page at patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit. Now today's episode, it's an exclusive where we get to see really what happens behind the scenes of the bourbon world. It's kind of like a hidden fortress in the industry that the average consumer has no clue about. I mean, think about it. Even today, out of nowhere, 11 and 12 year old Kentucky bourbon labels are coming up. Did you even begin to think, hmm, well, what distillery did these come from? Am I paying too much for a source product? And even getting into sourcing and non-distilling producers is really where all of this stems from. The days of bulk contracts with Heaven Hill or Four Roses, those are over. And many of those supply lines are being cut off. So people like our guest today are gonna play a pivotal role in the years to come to be that middle person behind these deals. Now, Jeff at Brindiamo Group tells us some of those dirty secrets in the barrel sourcing world and how he has established relationships with distilleries, small and large, to kind of create this connected web of barrel transportation across the world to get people access to any spirit they desire. He's helped brands like Kentucky Owl, the Bardstown Bourbon Company, Barrel Bourbon, and more. This is one episode that you can't miss. Now, you probably just heard me say that and think, oh my gosh, this is like way too technical. I, I don't even really know the basics at this point. 
Well, guess what? If you need to get back down to basics and sort of level up that knowledge, go to bourbonpursuit.com, hover over episodes, and go to our 101 section where you can get schooled on all the basics such as what is the definition of bourbon, how is bourbon made, and everything that you need to be able to start knowing all the basic level knowledge. Now with that, enjoy this week's episode. You get to hear Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. New Year's resolutions crack me up. We all make them, knowing we damn well won't keep them. I've added the gym to my New Year's routine many times, only to last three or four workout sessions, and I come up with these obscure at-home resolutions, such as I won't bring work home or I won't pile the mail on the kitchen table. After my credit card junk mail took over two plate settings, I realized I needed to make new resolutions to give up resolutions. I just completely stopped doing New Year's resolutions because I was better at avoiding them than fulfilling the promise to myself, which is really weird because I'm extremely goal-oriented. I haven't done a New Year's resolution in some time. But I tried one this year. I need to give up my TV bourbon. Yeah, one of my guilty pleasures, after the kids are in bed, I pour a healthy dram, kick my legs up, and watch Justified reruns on Amazon Prime. Before I know it, one dram turned into two, which became three, and suddenly I'm 600 calories in, and they're going straight to my hips. See, I'm a fatty. In fact, you could call me a fatty McFat fat. And I've actually been losing weight, so I am kind of encouraged to continue doing so. I've lost 15 pounds in the past couple months because, you know, I've cut out carbs and I'm working out a little bit. But I've plateaued out because of what I believe is my TV bourbon. Those wonderfully sweet caramel-laden pours just so perfectly go with Raylan Givens bashing in Win Duffy's face with a pistol. And the second one is just right for Art giving Raylan an ass-chewing. And the third, well, it's the one that goes with just about everything. Yeah, this resolution was so hard, I didn't even last a day. So maybe I need to give up something else. Perhaps vodka bashing? No, I have too much fun with that. As I interlook into who I am and what I spend too much time doing that I do not enjoy, it became clear that Facebook was the next idea for the New Year's resolution. And when I think about it, I get a little depressed because Facebook is so awesome and so brutally awful. It's a lot like real life with drama unfolding, fights breaking out, and people loving one another. Yeah, I can't give up Facebook. If I did, I'd be turning my back on a lot of friends who probably need me. So once again, a new year and no new resolutions for me. Happy 2019. And that's this week's Above the Char. Share your New Year's resolution with me on Twitter or Instagram at Fred Minnick. That's at Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. 
And they're off for another Give 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 from their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Fred here today talking with, honestly, it's a very interesting subject for for myself because getting into buying and sourcing barrels and coming out with a private label and then talking to this, it's like, it's a whole new world that I'm kind of getting myself enthralled in. And it was really Fred here that kind of opened up the door and said, hey, we should probably have this guy on because... He's going to be able to shed some light on this sort of secret backdoor sort of world that a lot of people only, I should I say, only the people that really know about it are ones that are really entrenched into the industry. Fred, can you give me a little bit more background on it? Yeah. So basically when we look at bourbon brokering, it's, it's one of those deals where it's an insider's trade. Like you don't really see people from New York or, California or Washington or wherever really connecting with people. You have to be boots on the ground and you have to know people. And uh, the person we're going to have on today is the largest bourbon broker in the world. He's the guy that people come to who are in the know that want to get, you know, 12 to 15 year old bourbon in a time when everyone says there's no 12 to 15 year old bourbon available. So uh, there's a lot of bourbon brokers out there, but Jeff is kind of the mover and shaker that everyone goes to. If there's the top of the pyramid, that's where he sits. So <laughs> yeah. He's the, he's the guy that, um, that has found a way to connect in distilleries that I don't even think the master distillers know about. So yeah, uh, a, a lot of the hap, a lot of the things that the, the brokers are able to do, it's really behind the scenes and you, the, the marketing people never know about it. Sometimes the master distillers don't know about it. It's, it's kind of the inner workings of, of the distilling business. And really, this is 
to my knowledge, it's one of the very first inside looks into um, how a bourbon broker does business really since the 1970s when that was something that would be talked about you know, publicly on a regular basis. So he's he's essentially the American pickers of of barrels is what you're trying to tell me, right? He can go and just take as much as he can and then try to like just sell it and buy it and everything like that. Yeah, he I think he walks around with a with a checkbook or a briefcase full of cash too and you know says, "Hey, uh, <laughs> let me let me get nice. that barrel there." <laughs> Nice, nice. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's that's going to be a great introduction for our guest today. So our guest is Jeff Hopmeyer. Jeff is the are you the are you the president or the owner? I, I guess I should, I should I, ask I, that before we start. I, I guess I would say I'm I'm both. We just call it managing partner. There we go. Managing partner of the Brindiamo Group, based out of Nashville. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want you to go ahead, kind of give us a little bit of a history here on, on how you cut your teeth in the industry, really how you got into this and it did it, was it bourbon from the beginning or, or kind of how it led you to bourbon as well? Um, so I, I really cut my teeth uh, in the 2000s. Uh, I had this dream to start a highly infused vodka company and uh, started up my own brand, hired some people from Seagram's back in the day and uh, uh, exhibited at WSWA and got introduced to Baron Eric Rothschild of Chateau Lafitte and ended up taking our vodka company public in London, uh, doing a joint venture with Suntory, buying a winery, selling the whole company, and then really started a strategic consulting company more to do mergers and acquisitions and help with strategy, um, you know, in the beverage space and ended up doing my first transaction in the space. You guys may know Collier's Collier McKeel, which was uh, Mike's operation here in Tennessee and ended up uh, uh, selling that property and, somebody asked me, hey, could you find some bourbon for me? And ended up doing this sourcing hunt and really uh, built a pretty big business uh, uh, doing exactly what Fred is saying, uh, you know, kind of knowing where some of the barrels are and and being trusted and delivering on our word and have created, uh, you know, a unique position for ourselves. And so talk a little bit more about what your your current operation, the Brindiamo Group, and what you do, because I know it's just not all sourcing. You also help orchestrate some investments, uh, some sure. uh, takeovers, stuff like that. You know, it's kind of like a, a stool with four legs on it. One portion of that is mergers and acquisitions, and it's not just in the spirit space. We have a winery where right now we're selling in Oregon. You know, so there's a mergers and acquisitions piece of the business. There's a helping companies match up with financing, not necessarily bank financing, but strategic investors that may be able to give them the capital they need to move forward. We also do some strategy work helping, whether it be in uh, securing distribution or brand ideas and things like that. And then we do the strategic sourcing. So kind of talk about 
the the evolution of sourcing of of what it used to be to kind of what it is today. I'm assuming it's gotten a little bit harder to find some of these barrels, or have you just been able to shake enough hands along the way that you can you can shake a few free? Uh, well, I, I can't just tell you all the secrets because then everybody <laughs> will do it. But but uh, I think that I think that as the popularity of brown goods, you know, has really ticked up. It's really created an opportunity for people that focus on relationships first and, and go in and, you know, just create a, a, a great relationship with these distilleries and the people at the distilleries so that if there is an opportunity where somebody is right-sizing their inventory, that we're the first call that they make. Uh, That's really what it's about. Jeff, I got to tell you, the minute you started talking about vodka, I noticed something uh, about your position in in your room. You're you're in front of your one of your guitars, and you got little red devil horns coming out. (laughs) I know, isn't that great? I go up or down. I can go like that, like that. So I, I better not slouch, is what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, so that may, that may get memed later on. You never know, but oh well, so be it. So when, when we look at, you know, the, the consumer populace is not very, they don't understand that a lot of people don't understand this side. It, it, it's, it's a mystery it's, it, and it's a mystery to people even inside the industry. And I understand you want to guard some secrets. I get that, but how the hell do you get, 12 and 14 year old bourbon right now when the demand for that product has never been higher. I mean, seriously, what, what are you doing? I think that it's about the relationships that we have, the confidentiality, confidentiality that we keep and the price we pay. I mean, that's, that's, so you're, really, you're paying a premium. We you're are. Paying a premium. There's, 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 there's no doubt that I think we reward, um, sellers of the product with a, with a pretty high premium. Do you feel like, um, they're profiting better when you're buying than let's say if they were to dump it into a a, a batch, um, or create a new brand around it? Do you feel like that you are able to help their bottom line a little better than say, if they were to enter it in their portfolio? Um, I think it depends on what the ultimate goal is, Fred, because I think that you can, if you're, if you're looking to sell a brand, you can get a higher multiple down the road based on that brand's volume being up. So if they pour it into the brand with the intent of selling it for 20x down the road, that's going to be a better value to them than selling it necessarily, selling it to me so that I can then resell it. Um, but I think what we're able to do is affect the sale and transfer over, you know, a dollar or $15 million tomorrow and make it happen. And, and so for people that are, you know, so you're done, you, you can do a transaction tomorrow for $15 million. We could do a transaction of pretty much any size we needed. Yes. Okay. And what are you, what are you uh, then selling those barrels at? Well, it depends, give, give on, the, a, it depends yeah. on the market. I mean, give us a know. range of like what you're, um, you know, kind of how you sell them to, 
let's say that, you know, Kenny and I want to create a, a brand called Old Ascot or something. You know, what are you <laughs> going to sell them to us at? Well, the first thing I would like to find out is what you need for that. Are you going to, are you looking for a Tennessee product? Are you looking for a U.S. bourbon product? Or what kind of age do you need? You know, the, the, the hottest age, the hardest thing to actually find right now is the 3.5 to 5-year-old Kentucky. It's not necessarily, um, you know, what you think of being 15-year-old being the hardest to find may not really be the hardest, but the sweet spot is kind of in that age. So we try to work with you to guide you to, to, to figure out the solution that you need specific to your brand. So a barrel, a barrel can, can you buy a barrel for 2700 or $8,000? Yes, you can. I, I've recently just bought myself a barrel for $10,000. So it really just depends what you're looking for, where the source is, and what you need. So okay. I, I got a kind of good question. You know, when you're saying you buy this barrel for $10,000, how how confident are you that what's in there is going to be good? How confident are you about how much liquid's actually going to be left in it depending upon the age? Because we all know that some of us can go, we go barrel picks, and say you go to Four Roses and you end up choosing a leaky barrel and it only gets... 35 bottles out of it or 60 bottles out of it, where some of them might get 150. So where do you, where do you kind of gauge that level of, 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 is this barrel going to be worth the, the, the investment? Well, there's a general rule of thumb. The first year in Tennessee, you lose 15% and then 5% every year after that in the barrel. In Kentucky, you lose 10% and then 4% every year after that in the barrel. Again, it depends on where you are in the rickhouse and things like that. But those are the general rules of thumb. So we apply that to anything we do. Um, but you are buying the barrels as is, where is. So the risk is really transferred to you. And you will get uh, empty barrels. You will get barrels that leak. It's just part of the industry. I will tell you that um, we have supplied some barrels to some folks. And even though we had as is, where is stamped on our invoice, they told us they had, you know, two empty barrels. We gave them two new barrels. So, you know, we try to do all the things that are right from a, excuse me, from a karma standpoint, um, because in the end, that's all that we have. So if somebody really ends up buying barrels from us and they feel jilted, we'll replace it with something that we have to accommodate it. So you're, um, give us an idea of how many people you are supplying that we would consider NDPs or non-distiller producers. How many brands are you currently su supplying? And uh, name those that you can, that you're allowed to. <laughs> well, I don't know that I'm really allowed to name any of them, but I guess I would tell you that we probably supply at least, I don't know, 50 to 60 a year, maybe. Okay. And what is, maybe their, more. What is their typical acquisition? Is it uh, 100 barrels, 2,000 barrels? What, are the, what is the quantity That's, in which they normally buy? Um, 
So on the non-distillery, we've had brand owners acquire uh, upwards of a thousand barrels from us. And we've had some that acquire one barrel from us. Generally, it's a little bit more difficult for us. It's much more expensive for us to do one barrel, right, than it is a thousand just from freight and math and everything like that. But uh, we do we do try to help people and work with them on it. Got it. How many barrels do you have in uh, inventory right now? Inventory or access to? Oh, that's a good question. Hey. <laughs> Kenny, what do you think? I think we should know both. <laughs> I, I, I think I think we should play a guessing game. What do you think? You, yeah, I'd love to guess. Let's let's take a guess. Guess. All right. Uh, I'm going to guess in inventory, you have 12,000 and access, you have uh, 35,000. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll think in inventory. I'm going to say less than that. I'm going to say he's got 5,000 to 7,000 inventory. Uh, access, I'm going to, I'm going to go over. I'm going to say he's got 40 to 50,000. Okay. So that, so I guess I would tell you that any given day in inventory, we have between 5,000 and 10,000 barrels. Okay. Right. We're both uh, right. Is that so, how? So somewhere, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in that. A lot of those are younger barrels, though, right? So they could be, you know, four four years on down, right? Um, we certainly have access to um, new distillate uh, pretty much every quarter to about fifteen thousand barrels a quarter. So we can, you know, we can certainly get up there in terms of the volume um, that we can deliver on a new distillate program. On the on the super aged, which I know is what Fred's thinking about, uh, generally a thousand to five thousand, I might be able to pull down. Wow. So, you said a, a pretty interesting thing there that that I kind of caught is that you're doing a lot of stuff for for new distillate program now. I kind of want to see, is this twofold? Is it one that you're buying for yourself at a, at a very small cost in hopes that you can age it and sell it for a premium later on? Or are there customers that are saying, Hey, I, I just want to get my hands on some Kentucky or Indiana or whatever kind of product. And then I'll wait and age it myself, but I just want you to run that transaction for me. So we do both. So some of them are barrels that we buy for ourselves and hold. Um, we've actually determined four or five different mash bills that we like to run that are harder to find, like a weeded mash bill, uh, 100% rye, things like that. So we run those for ourselves and hold them and, and hope that we can sell them down the road as they age. Um, and then we also run programs for other groups that do it as an investment strategy. Right. And they they are able to um, buy the barrels today and hold them and sit on it and, and hope that in three or four years, there'll be an opportunity for them to make the kind of margins that the industry makes today. Um, so we do that as well. And then we also because we've got access to distillery time and production time. Um, as you guys know, it's very tight out there, especially in Kentucky to find that. So people will come to us with 
new projects and things like that that need some time, maybe a custom mash bill or something like that. And and we will give them some of our time on the on the distillery side. What's the what's the level of risk that's being introduced here? Because when I think about it, if if I'm if all of a sudden I I hit a, a small lottery, not like a Powerball, let's say a small lottery, and I, I was, all, all of a sudden I've got two million dollars, and I want to invest, um, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand in buying some barrels, and I'll, I'm going to buy new make stuff, and I just have to hope that in a few years it's actually good because a lot of the stuff that people are getting they could be from other distilleries that just have excess capacity, but these are ones that might not have proven track records yet. So what's the level of risk that's being introduced there? So as Brindiama, we typically work with two or three distinct distilleries um, that have proven time and time again that they can produce for us at the level that we need to be at. Um, we do all kinds of DNA mapping on the on the product. We do GC testing, all kinds of things. So we, we're highly confident that they are producing for us what is expected. So I don't anticipate any issues with ours. I think there are certainly um, distilleries out there, and we've all seen it, where the quality down the road may not be uh, what you thought it was. And, and we just don't do business with a lot of those folks. You know, we've had, uh, honestly, we've been offered um, what we thought was five-year-old bourbon, which was really doctored rum. You know, we, we knew something was wrong with the lot codes because we hadn't seen codes like that before. Um, so we started to question it. The paperwork all looked right. Still didn't feel right. So we sent it in for some mapping and it came back as rum. Who so, was it? Who sent that to you? you? I can't tell you. Did you turn them <laughs> into the? Did you turn them into the federal author- authorities? It was an overseas source, so we bring tankers and things over from overseas as well, mm-hmm. because a lot of uh, American bourbon and whiskey is shipped overseas, um, and they do bottling over there. They have excess, and a lot of it may come back to the U.S. Um, and this just happened to be not the right thing. But what I did do is put out a notice to many of the large distillery operators around town and said, hey, this is out there floating around, be careful. And I also, you know, put a notice out there to other brokers in the business so that they knew uh, what we discovered. So you you bring up a really interesting, you know, point that really has been going on since the late 1800s in which people have been trying to say something was bourbon and it wasn't bourbon. Uh, do you think anything like that has ever entered the market in the modern Absolutely. time? Absolutely. So you, so you think right now we have some of these non-distiller producers who are buying from, let's say, less than uh, authoritative brokers such as yourself. They may actually be bo- you know, bottling blackstrap molasses that's colored and called bourbon. Well, I'm never going to say that that's what they're doing because I don't know firsthand, but I can tell you that the product that came in to myself uh, f- fooled some major master distillers. So, so I think that wow. th- the realities are that in today's world, y- you can do a lot with flavoring and you can do a lot to 
fake things. So I think people just have to know that the people that they're working with are reputable and trust them and that they've delivered. I mean, but I do believe there's probably um, some product somewhere out there that certainly uh, doesn't pass the test. Now, Kenny, this is, I mean, while I knew, knew about some of the stuff, this is even eye open. this is still a very eye-opening. Um, Jeff, can you give us like perhaps a percentage of, of what you think maybe out there would be fake bourbon? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Jeff, can you give us like perhaps a percentage of of what you think maybe out there would be fake bourbon? I, I I really couldn't give you an exact number. I mean, this incident we had with the rum was the first time in you know six years or seven years of brokering that it's ever come up. Okay, uh, uh, but it was a full tanker of product, so it you know that product ended up somewhere. I have no idea where, mm-hmm. right, or, or what marketplace. You know, it could have been sold to I don't know. Europe, China, it, you know, it could, it could be anywhere. I really don't know. Um, but again, I think it's few and far between. And I think when you're using and, you know, knowing where the barrels are stamped from and being able to track the lock codes and you're using people that know that this specific lock code is parked in this specific rick house, and I can look at the, look up the location codes and I know it's there. It, you know, we have a much better degree of confidence than when you're bringing stuff over in tankers or totes because those wow. have been dumped. Those have been dumped, right? So it creates a another layer of complexity in paperwork and things to do. 
Yeah, I think one one question I want to tag on to that as well is what's the what's the amount of stuff that is actually going overseas and then actually being brought back? Because I, I know that's just it's it's extra stuff that you can pull into inventory, but how often is that really happening? Or are you looking to just source here domestically? Well, 98% we source domestically, right? What, what, what comes, what, what may come back over is few and far between when it's available. Uh, it's kind of hit or miss, right? So it's not something that um, happens all the time. It's just, you get lucky bites at the apple and, you know, you tend to take them if you can. Do you think that we should have like, like the consumer should know when something is being reclaimed from overseas? Um, it, it, it feels like there's in our, in our circles that a lot of people would like to know that this is something that was reclaimed. And I know there's not a law or anything that kind of says you have to do that. But do you, you know, what's your opinion there, Jeff? Do you feel like the the bottler should be disclosing some of that? Well, there is paperwork that follows the load as it comes back into the United States that really has the original DSP producer information on it. So um, the paperwork is done, I believe, on the on the federal side and the tracking and moving through with the with the product from a. It's more of a marketing issue, I guess, than it is a, you know, do we, you know, a, a, a federal reg kind of issue. Um, and what I see today is what people really care about on the bottle is the age statement, uh, the proof, and that it says bourbon or whiskey. I mean, that's that's kind of really what the attention has been lately. I mean, there's, you had mentioned taking stuff over and actually bottling over there. Like one of the brands that came to mind, I think it's like Penny Pincher bourbon, something like that. You actually read the back of the label, Penny Packer. And it says that it's actually bottled in Germany. Uh, It was just, that's one of those things that I always found pretty, pretty interesting myself. I think a lot of the larger distilleries out there may have long-term supply agreements with some of these different distilleries and operations overseas. And so it's a lot cheaper for them to ship, you know, full containers or tankers overseas, bottle there, you know, buy their glass over there. They don't have to pay freight or anything, and they can introduce it into their German market or the EU markets, you know, more cost effective than if they were to bottle it here and ship it over. And that's why they do it. Oh, I want to kind of switch gears just a little bit because, you know, if we go look at your website, you've got some very successful brands that are on there that you've called out. You've got Kentucky Al, you've got Barrel Bourbon, Bardstown Bourbon Company as, as some of your lighthouse customers. And those are the ones that our, our listeners are pretty familiar with. So at what stage were you helping these brands out? Was it getting started sourcing? Was it part of acquisitions or investments? At what, what point in stages were you, did you have your hands in it? <laughs> um, uh, he's he's going through all the contracts in his head right now. And then, I'm thinking, and then, I'm thinking, and then we're gonna I'm rattling, I'm rattling off. Okay. And then we're going to ask so, you where, where Dick's in barrel. So just get ready for that one next. <laughs> that that I won't tell you, but um, but uh, uh, you know, look, I'm on the board of Bardstown Bourbon Company. I've known David and Dan there for a long time. Um, 
when they were getting started and were looking for a strategic partner, um, I was the one that put the deal together with Constellation and themselves. Um, so, so I've been intimately involved with David and Dan for a long time, uh, honored to be on their board and be part of what they are doing, um, you know, and uh, have, have certainly uh, assisted them in uh, uh, some of the collaboration series that are coming out and introducing them to some of the people I know in the industry um, so that they could, you know, get access to some of those people pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, the guys at BBC, they crush it on their own. They don't need me. It's just uh, fun to be able to be part of it and see where they're, where they're going. Um, in terms of Kentucky Owl, you know, I was certainly intimately involved in uh, uh, the buy and the sell on uh, when Dixon sold that brand to Stoli. Uh, and so I've known Dixon and those guys for a long time. Actually, I was introduced to Dixon by David and Dan. So, uh, uh, and I probably talked to Dixon as often as Fred probably talks to him, pretty often. Uh, um, and, and I also was intimately involved in the, I was the one who, uh, put the real estate deal together for Kentucky Owl Park. So by when, uh, Stoli and the team bought the, uh, the quarry site where they're going to build the new distillery. Um, so I was certainly involved in that and, uh, you know, I'm I'm on the board of Stoli and Amber as well, so uh, intimately involved on on that side of the business. And with Joe and the guys at Barrel, uh, again, as 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 everybody knows, a lot of these uh, brands need strategic resources, growth capital, and things like that. And I've certainly uh, helped Joe and advised him. Uh, and his team in certain things that they may have needed and made introductions to them as well. And after this airs, you're probably going to have like 500 people, you know, contacting you like, hey, I've got my grandfather's <laughs> recipe in my basement. And I'm ready to start a new whiskey. That's why I have the devil horns right up yeah. here. Because <laughs> we, we, we're, we're, we're pretty picky about what we do. Right. And we can't help everybody. And we acknowledge it up front that uh, we are not 100 percent successful. Um, and the marketplace is pretty full today. Most of the big companies and the big strategics have found their horses to ride, mm -hmm. um, you know, have found their pieces to back. There will be things out there that will come to the market that garner great interest. But, you know, Raising capital and finding the right capital partners is tough. It is, it is much easier to sell high-priced barrels or low-priced barrels, uh, much harder to find that right strategic partner to match with the brand. Yeah, and there, you kind of sparked a peak of interest for me as well because you said there's brands out there that you can. You said you, you're not always successful. What contributes to something that doesn't make it a success? Is it because – they buy from you and then they just bottle it at 80 proof and didn't really think about the consumer market. Like what's, what are those things that, that don't really contribute to a success? 
Well, I think that that would be a really bad example because it has nothing to do with whether they buy from me or not. <laughs> I, I think I think that you, you I think you have to have a real long-term financial view of the marketplace. And you can't sit there and say, I'm going to sell this brand for $250 million. The reality is you should develop your brand and your ideation and your company to build a good company. And if you do things the right way, there will always be the opportunity to sell it, my belief. And so I don't, I think what happens is everybody, a lot of people try to create brands and introduce them into the marketplace at what I would say ineffective retail prices. And those prices don't allow them to make money. So they have to continually go back out to the marketplace and raise money and raise money and raise money. And that's just a failed strategy in my, in my belief. It's just hard because you then have to focus on raising money, not building your brand. And that just doesn't work. So price is one aspect. Like if, if I was to take the, the Jeff Hopmeyer playbook here, what are some of the other uh, things that kind of contribute to your long-term view of where this market is going? Well, look, I think, I think that in this marketplace, you have to create a halo brand. That's the, that's the key to this. And, and I think halos are above 129 bucks a bottle. So I think you have to be able to, really create something that's unique. It's got to be in a beautiful package. It's got to be able to say, hey, look, I'm an expert in this field. I know what I'm doing. And you have to get people behind that, almost like a tipping point method, before you look at introducing things at other levels. That's kind of, you know, my belief. And I think it's hard. I think it's hard to make money between the 30 and $45 retail price because you've got competition out there that we all know about that, you know, has been doing this for a long time and become much more efficient. And, and I, so I just try to advise people, look, stay above $50 a bottle. Yeah, I think because to me, I think and let's take the, the rest of the consumer market out there. A lot of people look at the brands that come from, you know, basically the big boys that are out there, the Four Roses, the Heaven Hills, the Makers, the Jim Beams. And they have pretty consistently good products at that thirty to fifty dollar mark, and you know, and you're saying create something that's one hundred and thirty bucks from the consumer market, at least to go out there and buy bottles once a month. Maybe that seems like it could be a little steep, but you kind of seem to think the opposite of it. Well, look, I think I mean, look at that bottle of barrel bourbon right behind you, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that I think that the Today's consumer values good product, great product, great packaging. They value the story. They value the connection to the master distiller or the brand owner. So I think to the extent that you can uh, build that into whatever you're doing is where you really create great value in the marketplace. You just have to have something, something yeah. unique, yeah. Let me ask about from like a, I was recently talking to a distiller who was very glad that Heaven Hill got rid of the six-year-old bottle to bond. And it, it it was very difficult for us as consumers because that was one of our go-tos. It was like a secret. And 
Uh, and of course, when Heaven Hills, uh, Henry McKenna started going bonkers, um, you know, it sold at $30 a bottle. I've talked to distillers who hate these great bottles that are priced under $40 and because they feel like it brings the market down. And you're talking about like a successful strategy is being above 50, you know, being above $50. I mean, but at some point we have to think about, you know, the consumer, the guy who's kind of brought the, the guy, gals brought the bourbon to the dance, if you will, who's, who's cut their teeth on bourbon when they were 22, 15, 20 years ago. And they were buying, you know, nine to $20 bourbons that were stellar. Now we're seeing that go away a little bit. I mean, Jeff, are you concerned at all that, you know, this, this strategy may price out uh, a lot of those tried and true bourbon consumers? I don't see it happening. Um, I don't see, I don't see the drop off in the data that I look at. Um, there may be data out there that doesn't support it, but when I look at when I talk to all these people who are making these brands or these distilleries, and they all want to sell, right? Everybody's talking about how do they do the high west deal or how do they do the Casa, <laughs> everybody Casa, wants the high west deal, the high west deal, right? The Casa Amigos deal, <laughs> um, you know, everybody everybody wants it. Um, so what I'm saying is, look. You know, I think that the way you do that and the way you get there is by focusing on these higher margin, higher retail type opportunities. So it it it, it doesn't really bother me. Jack is always going to be out there, right? It's always going to be out there. Jim Beam is always going to be out there. There are going to be things out there. But I think the marketplace is ripe um, for luxury goods. For these high price points, I think, you know, it's the it's kind of the LVMH strategy, right? It's the Moet Hennessy kind of kind of strategy. There are people, no matter doesn't matter about the tariffs or anybody, you go to the LVMH store, it's still packed out with people buying purses. So I think that strategy works. And I think as the marketplace matures and continues to age up people will have a little bit more disposable income and they will move up to the, these quality high-end goods. New players may start lower, but as it ages, they will age too. And I think it's just, it's just the nature of what it is when something trades hands a few times till it actually reaches the, reaches the end consumer. Uh, it's going to be a, a more expensive product just because of the nature of what it is. The distiller that manufactures has got to make their margin before it goes to you. You got to make your margin before it goes to somebody else, and maybe that margin before they actually hit their hit the distributor, so on and so forth, until it actually hits the retail uh, retail marketplace. Versus somebody that just owns the stills, puts out their own product, and kind of removes a few layers there. So, does that contribute a lot to the the higher prices that you see as well? Well, I, I mean, look, I don't know everybody's manufacturing costs, but I think that there are efficient operations out there that produce at a, at a, at a really uh, phenomenal price and they've been doing it for a long time. And I think it's harder for the new guys coming into the marketplace to hit those same kind of levels, but clearly all along the distribution channel, everybody takes their pound of flesh. So if you don't build into it from the get go, a high enough retail to support yourself throughout it, 
it doesn't work. You have to make money from day one. That's it. You've got to make money. That's the piece of this. So I think it's important to make sure that you build that in. You can't go out there and raise a million dollars and say, we're going to invest it in billboards and lose money. That, to me, is a failed strategy. What you have to do is make money on every bottle you sell. That's it. Mm-hmm. Huh. So there's, a, there's another kind of question I want to just kind of hit on the, the sourcing side, because, you know, kind of getting into this a little myself, you know, you start Googling around and you're trying to figure out, like, where, do I, where can I buy barrels? Like, how do I do this? And it, it seems like it's like this. I don't want to. I mean, it's kind of like it. Right. It's an old boys club. It's either all done on the phone. you got to know people. And it's not like it's not like trading on the stock market where I can just open up a Charles Schwab account and buy stock in whomever I want just on my computer. Right. So I'm assuming that there is no there's no online dashboard that says, oh, these barrels are on the market today. Click buy now to get them. Right. So how does how do those sort of transactions work? There is no online dashboard. Uh, that's so for that, sure. That's for sure. There's opportunity, right? <laughs> that's not an opportunity. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, look, I, I the the people that are out there that do the barrel trading, and and uh, honestly, I would tell you, there's four or five of us that really do most of it. Um, we and all, your part, and your partners with half of them. <laughs> I, 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 we certainly have some good relationships. <laughs> um, so, so, but, but we, even though we're competitors, we all work with each other. So, if somebody needs this, they'll call me or shoot me an email, and I'll, you know, I may supply it or vice versa. So, there's no, there's no. While we all probably have Excel sheets that. Our, our, our dashboards, right? And, and I can tell you, I've got one and, you know, every day, uh, every day it tells me exactly the age of the barrels and the locations, you know, so, so we certainly have that kind of dashboard, but things just come in and out every single day, right? You know, yesterday I created, somebody called me and said they had some barrels to sell. I made one phone call and sold all 400 in a snap, right? They just, the inventory just turns so fast um, that, you know, that's kind of the way it works. So there's no bullpen of you like holding these, these scratch sheets of paper saying like, I'll buy it 400, I'll buy it 400. There's, there's not that. That, that that does not exist. I don't even think that still exists in the stock market. But, <laughs> Just for show. Yeah. You've been, you've been watching Wall Street too many times. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, sh- I shorted that, oranges that, this year, right? Ah, that's right. That's right. If you got the orange report from Trading Places. Yeah. Right? Wasn't that what it was? <laughs> yeah. Frozen concentrate. Um, no, I, there, there is uh, – that, that – just doesn't exist. Interestingly, I tried to put up on a mark and whiteboard in my office all this stuff at one time. And it's just, it just doesn't work. It's just easier to keep it in your head. And I think that's what most of us do. So let's look at what happened at um, the 1792 Barton Distillery. Like the the warehouse collapsed. Uh, I had always assumed that a lot of that was partially owned by you or other brokers. What happens in a scenario like that where, you know, there's a force majeure moment? Does the, 
does the distiller work with you to get you additional barrels or are you just caught flat footed and just lose? Um, it depends. Depends on the relationship and your contract. All of our barrels are insured generally through Lloyd's of London. So if you're, if, if us as an owner is doing our right job, we're taking our insurance up every year for the real value of the barrel. So that if something like that happens, we'll get the cash back. We may not be able to get the, the barrel back. Um, so it's, it's the owner, it's really the onus is on us to make sure that we're insuring the barrels for those kinds of things. Um, I do believe from what I heard, it didn't affect me, but from what I heard, any of those barrels that were lost, um, they were replaced by the distiller. Wow. So now I'd like to, I kind of, I know you, you won't confirm where you're getting things, but I, I kind of would like to to get a feel from you of like who is not uh, selling their whiskey on the open market. <laughs> is there any? Is there? Because we we hear I, I have had master distillers tell me that they've never done it, and then I find out you know there's six tankers of their stuff being uh, uh, is on the. Well, times these master distillers don't even know what what's going on. But is there, is there a Kentucky distillery that will not sell? Ooh, playing a little stump the chump here. I'm, tr- I'm running through the dist- – I'm clicking through the distilleries in my mind. Um, I can cite them if you'd like. I, I, I have the DSP list. It's okay. Um, is there a distillery that wouldn't sell? I would tell you – I would believe that most of the distilleries would sell. It depends on price. Okay. It, 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 I think that's really th- – there are certainly ones that I've never acquired barrels from before. Um, but that doesn't mean that we didn't acquire barrels from one of their custom clients. Oh. Right? So they could be producing for somebody else, and that person may have sold. And so so what, I heard, what I heard there is that you acquired some bullet from when uh, Four Roses was, was making it. That's what I heard. <laughs> Kenny, is that what you heard? Yeah, he's got some source bullet <laughs> sitting around. I, I can neither confirm nor deny those kinds of comments. We just, we just ask you to send us your offer and email. Very nice. Well, that's real cool. So, Fred, if there's any other last questions, if not, we'll wrap it up. What, what, what's another state we know about Tennessee, we know about Indiana, but what's, what's a state that has, uh, got a lot of, uh, whiskey on the open market right now outside of those three states. Outside of those three states. So I would say, um, we bring in a fair degree of Canadian rye. Okay. Okay. Um, we, we bring in, in terms of a U.S. bourbon suppliers, I would tell you Texas, Virginia, Wyoming would be okay. interest would be probably the larger sources of U.S. bourbon. Okay. Are a lot of people really looking and targeting themselves to say, I want to create a Texas bourbon here in Illinois or something like that? What's- it's, not, it's not to create a Texas bourbon in Illinois. It's can I acquire bourbon or whiskey in Texas 
cheaper than I can acquire it somewhere else so that I can get to my retail price points. So if you can buy product in Virginia for $10 a proof gallon less than you can from Tennessee, that could make a real significant difference in your margin. So you can buy that in the totes or in barrels, ship it to Strong Spirits or anywhere else and you know bottle it on site there and just be called a U.S. bourbon. High West, right, is really a U.S. was was, you know, a blender of barrels and certainly a U.S. bourbon buying around doing that kind of project. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, so I yeah. think uh, I think that'll that'll probably wrap it up for this one. I think this was a this is a very interesting. I think we could we could probably do another episode about this in the future. And <laughs> absolutely, we'll, we'll we'll brainstorm and come up with some real real. Oh, uh, great, great, real questions. real stumpers. Yeah, J- Jeff may uh, block us after this, so when he starts, his inbox gets inundated with a "Hey, I want to start a bourbon." You know, hey, so. you know, it's okay. We'll, we'll we respond <laughs> to every email. So oh, that is true. And you're very good true. on you're very good on text as well. So Yeah, we respond to everything. We just may not give you the answer you want. Well, if you'd like to, you can go ahead and give your cell phone number out to 10,000 plus people if you'd like. Cell phone won't be given out. I'm dismissed. So, <laughs> but but uh, outside of that, people should be able to Google us and figure out how to get us. There you go. So make sure you you read more about Jeff and the Brindiamo group at brindiamogroup.com so you can probably get in contact with them through there and you know i want to say first off thanks for coming on this was this was a really cool subject to kind of get a little bit of a peek behind the kimono of what happens you know behind these brands that do a lot of sourcing and blending and figure out how do they bring their products to the market i think it's a it's a very interesting take on it all fred i appreciate it happy to happy to do another segment whenever you want Jeff, I want to, I want to tell you, I really appreciate it. I know, I know this was not, uh, a lot of people would turn this down. So thank you so much for, for letting us an inside look into what it's like to be a bourbon broker. (laughs) I appreciate it. Thanks, Fred. You bet. Thanks, guys. Probably not a job for the, uh, the week of heart, right? You gotta, you probably gotta take a lot of on the way. High risk, high reward. There you go. That's the way it works. It's like roulette. Put it on 23 and surround it and hope for the best. That's what, that's what you got to do. That's what you got to do. So so as I said, make sure you go check out Jeff's website, brindiamogroup.com. Make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Also, make sure you follow Fred Minnick on Instagram and tw- Facebook and Twitter as well. And if you have any show suggestions, things you'd like to see, send us an email, team at bourbonpursuit.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, you want to hear more great stuff like this. And we've actually had a few people on that were in the chat and watching this. We had about eight live viewers on from Patreon subscribers. So if you want to see these happen in real time, help support the show, be a part of our community, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash bourbon pursuit. With that, Jeff, Fred, thanks again for joining and we'll see everybody next week. Cheers. Thanks guys. Cheers. Cheers.